Welcome to Cato Audio for January 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. Happy New Year. In this month's offering, author Paul Matsko discusses some historic abuses by the federal government in regulating the airwaves and offers some parallels for today. Jill Carlson of the Open Money Initiative discusses cryptocurrencies and civil liberties. And author Virginia Postrel discusses world history as told through the history of textiles. But first up, this month's Cato Roundtable. My secret fear, and I should note that as of this recording, we're recording in the middle of December, my secret fear is that when I am awake at the stroke of midnight on December 31st, that the calendar will reveal yet another month of 2020. Um, but if that fear is allayed, 2020 has been uh, a very strange, uh, very difficult, uh, in many ways, very disappointing year. Um, but uh, perhaps there's some good that we can highlight uh, in it. Um, and so I'm speaking with David Bose, Executive Vice President of the Cato Institute, Clark Neely, Cato's Vice President for uh, Criminal Justice, and Tom Fiery, Senior Fellow at Cato and Chief Haranger of Authors at Regulation Magazine. Is that fair, Tom? Uh, Chief Haranger of Authors and, and just General Worrywart, I guess. General Worrywart of Regulation Magazine. So um, where to start? Uh, Tom, I want to start with you. In uh, late December, early January, we became aware of a pandemic uh, emanating from China and uh, quickly spanning the globe. And the, the early fights about this, as I recall, were, uh, at least in the United States, were about governments that had quickly locked down. Uh, in, and I'm putting that in, in scare quotes because it, uh, it meant very different things in, in different places. Uh, as an economist, how did you evaluate that those lockdowns and the justifications for them. It's incredibly hard to evaluate them as an economist as, as compared to, to someone who simply loves liberty. Uh, what makes it hard is there's so many unknowns. If it's a situation where uh, the disease was as easily transmitted and as deadly as what some people were fearing at the time, the rationales behind the lockdown seem more sensible. On the other hand, uh, if they if the disease was of very little concern, as other people claimed at the time, uh, then the, the lockdowns looked terrible. The, the big problem is we simply didn't know. And there's a human uh, impulse usually to think the worst and do the worst. Uh, and so we, we chose to think the worst in this case and lockdown. And it will be very interesting, you know, as an economist, uh, watching research in the coming months and years to see whether the you know the uh, various scholars that dig into this decide uh, whether the costs and benefits uh, you know which one outweighed the other uh, you know as a liberty loving person uh, lockdowns or any sort of a, a strong action like that you know put me on edge to say the least uh, at the same time especially in New York City when we saw the 
death rate and infection rates and and the hospitals getting overloaded, uh, I could certainly see in the city why there was a, a feeling that we just needed to try to get people to stay home. Yeah, that seemed uh, remarkable. And there's a certain luxury associated with being able to stay home. Uh, so many people who uh, lost their jobs in this pandemic were people who can't do that or their job doesn't exist if they're at home. That's right. We think of obviously blue collar workers. It's very hard to do that over Zoom, uh, service workers, uh, and and also just simply uh, uh, you know even uh, you know higher higher skill level workers have to go out and interact with people. Uh, at the same time, then you know looking at the other side, they might someone might push back and say, well, if we reduce social contact among people who can stay home. That will keep even the people who have to go out safer because, you know, we're, we're slowing the interaction rate. So I appreciate that argument again. You know, looking back in, into March, I can understand, you know, again, there were just incredible unknowns at the time and a lot of fear. And fear makes people take dramatic actions, good and bad. Um, so I don't want to, thinking economically, I don't want to rip into people um, doing that. But again, as a liberty-loving person, I have very strong feelings about that. David? I, I want to make a point about the lockdowns that I think sometimes gets overlooked, and that is that the initial shutdown of much of the economy was not at the direction of government. I wrote a blog post on this in March or maybe April uh, where I showed Open Table, the uh, restaurant reservation website, revealed that restaurant reservations had fallen off the cliff before there was any government action. People saw, oh, it's dangerous to be in restaurants. They stopped. And I always say, as a Kentuckian, I knew that this thing was serious when March Madness shut down. And then, of course, very shortly after March Madness, the Kentucky Derby announced that it would not run. And the whole NCAA tournament was uh, the rest of the NCAA season was canceled. So lots of these things were happening, including Cato deciding to go to mandatory telework in mid-March before any government agency said people have to lock down. And so I think we want to talk about what the government should have done, but we should also understand that Millions of people individually looked at the scientific medical information they were reading and said, I don't want to go to restaurants. I don't want to go to my office. I definitely don't want to take the subway to my office. And uh, notably, uh, to toot our own horn a bit, uh, Bob Levy and Peter Gettler wrote a uh, note for the Wall Street Journal that uh, detailed that Cato would not be accepting part of this uh, massive stimulus package, these so-called PPP loans that were uh, being offered essentially to almost anyone who requested one. Well, that's right. And I think you made a mistake that a lot of people do in calling them stimulus loans. Stimulus is supposed to be when the economy's been in recession and you're trying to goose it to get going again. In the, in the case of the PPP, it seems to me what that was, was relief that businesses are shut down. They don't have revenue coming in. Employees, therefore, won't get their salaries. So rightly or wrongly, Congress decided we're going to give individuals and businesses money to tide them over. And we're continuing to learn that billionaires' businesses got this money, that churches got this money, all kinds of nonprofits, um, and so on. But yes, uh, Bob Levy and Peter Gettler did announce 
uh, that Cato would not take such money because we don't generally believe in the government giving money and especially the government giving money to people who are in business to advance ideas that not everyone agrees with. Yeah, and uh, to the to the point about the distinction between relief and stimulus, I think Ryan Bourne and I have done several rounds on the Cato Daily podcast uh, trying to clarify that distinction, and yet here I am making that same error once again. Um, also in early March, and this is uh, for you, Clark Neely, I, I remember coming home a day early to my home in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, on March 12th and March 13th, early in the morning, uh, Brianna Taylor was killed in her apartment, uh, in Louisville. Um, it took a while before that event really became uh, a galvanizing moment in Louisville. And it took the death of George Floyd at the hands of Minneapolis police to really, uh, bring this other killing to a national attention. And we had this long uh, spring and summer of protest over police brutality and uh, the, the in general, the, the way that the police tend to treat black Americans. So uh, going back in time a little bit, how do you, how do you characterize uh, sort of that, that moment, at least the, the early part of this long moment of, of protest over uh, police interactions with largely black Americans. Right. Well, as libertarians, of course, we want to keep in mind that the primary uh, interface uh, between citizens and government, or for many citizens anyway, is their encounters with police. And certainly um, the primary interface in settings where the government may use force against you is when you are um, uh, dealing with a police officer. And if we create a situation where police are frequently um, coming into contact uh, with ordinary citizens to investigate relatively trivial crimes like low-level drug possession, um, traffic infractions, and so forth, then in a sense, we, we're, we're generating a lot more interaction of the kind that I'm describing um, than really needs to take place. Uh, and as we saw in several incidents this year, those interactions can turn ugly very quickly. In some ways, I think that the uh, the most telling image of uh, uh, criminal justice and police reform of 2020 is the look on Darren Chauvin's face as he's killing George Floyd by uh, pressing his knee into George Floyd's neck over a period of nine minutes. If you look at that video, and it's very difficult to watch, but if you look at it, what you will see on the look of Darren Chauvin is a man who doesn't think he's doing anything wrong and is quite certain that he will get away with it regardless. And he's killing a man, an unresisting prone man on the ground, and he's killing him by cutting off his air supply over a period of nine minutes. Um, that conviction, if, you know, I, I'm reading into it, of course, but, but the belief that you are essentially in, uh, acting with impunity uh, as a police officer is both accurate and horrifying. The only reason why there was any uh, uh, response in that case is because there was a video that went viral. But more often than not, uh, those kinds of incidents are simply swept under the rug and we never hear about them. So what happened, I think, in the wake of the Breonna Taylor killing, uh, the George Floyd killing, the shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, is that people were expressing their outrage that A, so many encounters between police and citizens turned violent 
with result that people are, are either killed or permanently disabled as Jacob Blake was. And B, there's almost never proper accountability when that happens. And instead, what happens is that the police put out a version of the events that often turns out not to be true. They fight like hell to suppress uh, video evidence, for example, if they have uh, uh, imagery from body cameras and so forth. And at a certain point, some, sometime in the late spring or the early summer, a core group of people, particularly from communities of color, simply said, we are not going to take this anymore. And they took to the streets and they protested. And for a period of time, many American cities were in flames. And I think no one should excuse the excesses and the property damage and the violence that went along with those protests, but neither should they in any way minimize what those people were protesting about simply because some of those protests went too far. They have a point. And I'm afraid that that point is largely falling uh, on deaf ears with policymakers. So uh, I have spoken with uh, the podcast with on the podcast with uh, some people uh, about protest movements that actually get results. And uh, obviously, violence is uh, a, a net negative when it comes to uh, trying to establish some sort of policy change or, or getting some foothold in in policy to even begin a, a a discussion about change because people can dismiss it so easily over the summer what was the what was the response uh, what to the extent that there was some positive change in the in this area uh, dealing with the interactions of police and individuals what was it well, of course, you had responses at, at sort of two levels of government. Uh, you had uh, Congress uh, expressed, I think, genuine interest in trying to achieve some sort of police reform um, and then failed to do it largely uh, for political reasons. Uh, but then you also had uh, responses uh, in various states. And of course, on some level, the state response uh, is more important simply because states have much more responsibility uh, for law enforcement and the vast majority of interactions between citizens and law enforcement occur um, between state and municipal law enforcement officers. Uh, those results are basically all over the spectrum. You have a number of states where there were um, some genuine uh, reforms and steps in the right directions, some states where you just got a bunch of empty hand-wringing and crocodile tears, and some states where they did not, not even that much. Uh, so it's very much still uh, kind of a work in progress. Things are still very much in flux. Uh, but I would say, by and large, the people who are protesting um, the, the criminal justice system and the ability of police to commit violence with impunity are not satisfied with the response thus far, and neither should they be satisfied because it has been wholly inadequate. There have been some positive moves at the state level. I spoke with, for the podcast, Leslie Herod, who is a state lawmaker in Colorado, who was the chief sponsor of a, a piece of reform legislation uh, following the death of a young man in Colorado, which was sort of a galvanizing force there. What happened there? Well, Colorado became uh, the first state to respond um, by eliminating qualified immunity. This summer, Colorado legislature passed uh, a bill that created a state analog to the federal civil rights law that we call Section 1983 that gives people in Colorado the ability to sue law enforcement officers when they violate uh, your rights under the state 
constitution, which are largely analogous to the federal constitution. Uh, and they deliberately chose not to include a qualified immunity defense. In fact, my colleague Jay Schweikert was invited to come and testify before the Colorado legislature about whether they should uh, include qualified immunity. And of course, he said they should not um, because that's a defense that enables uh, police officers and other government officials to get your case dismissed, even if your case is meritorious, simply because there's no pre-existing precedent exactly on point. Um, so it's uh, a step in the right direction. Um, another big step in the right direction um, occurred in California and New York, um, both of which were terrible when it came to accessing uh, police records of prior disciplinary uh, actions, uh, other kinds of misconduct on the job. I think it's notable that the law enforcement community has been fighting tooth and nail to prevent those and other reforms from going into effect. The law enforcement community sees no need, no real problems, no need for any kind of significant change, and they resist with tremendous uh, ferocity uh, any sort of meaningful reform, like making it easier for people to get access to police dis disciplinary records. I expect that to continue. All right, David. <laughs> Everything we've been talking about so far, we haven't even talked about the fact that we had a very contentious presidential election this year. And the pandemic, the sort of summer of protest relating to police brutality was all occurring in the background. Um, give me your just general sense of what uh, in 2020 this presidential election looked like. It was a year with a lot of news. Um, President Trump likes to be the center of attention. And even with all this news going on, I think every single day he was the center of attention. He had something to say in a way that previous presidents have not every day. And it was frequently controversial and stirred up uh, a lot of argument, uh, a lot of news. Um, and so that was the main thing that was going on in the election. So the fundamental thing about the election, I think, was that it was a referendum on President Trump, as any re-election campaign is, but more so here. And then on the other side, you had something like 17 Democrats who thought this was a good opportunity to win a presidential election. And much of the focus was on the more radical candidates uh, like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. But in the end, they faded very quickly. And the Democratic voters said, no, we kind of like the old, quiet, experienced, no drama guy. And so I think what eventually happened was that the idea of return to normalcy, the president, the presidency, the president will be calmer than we've been experiencing, was enough to beat Bernie Sanders and then enough to beat Donald Trump. And, and ultimately, people, by a not very large majority, chose normalcy. The best argument each side had was look at the other side. I mean, clearly the Republicans and President Trump were saying Democrats are out there talking about socialism and the Green New Deal and national health insurance, and you just can't give them that much power. And the Democrats were saying, but look at President Trump. Do you want four more years of this? And as I say, by a fairly narrow margin, voters chose President-elect Biden, but 
they did not vote very heavily for Democrats in other races. So once again, the voters have said, we don't want to give either party total control of Washington. Uh, yeah. On that point, Clark, we saw at the at the ballot box, uh, in addition to a whole bunch of Republicans being elected, we saw a lot of ballot initiatives that pretty much dramatically reduced the role of police when it comes to uh, things like cannabis and other drugs. Yeah, there's definitely been encouraging progress uh, made um, on dialing back the scope of the drug war. Of course, most of us believe we should have ended it uh, years ago. But certainly this is one area where we have really set ourselves up to fail. Um, when you criminalize an activity that lots of perfectly decent, otherwise law-abiding people wish to engage in and continue to engage in, despite the fact that it's illegal, um, the government then has a very difficult choice. They either turn a blind eye and allow people uh, to break those laws with impunity, um, or they go out and enforce those laws anyway, um, many of which are morally unjustifiable. And oftentimes they will enforce those laws in a way that the enforcement falls heaviest uh, on the heads of those who are sort of the least able to fight back through the political process, including, as you mentioned earlier, uh, on communities of color. And that will trigger tremendous resentment among those people. They know they're being singled out for the enforcement of laws that don't make the world any better. They resent it and they should resent it. And this creates the kind of cycle of dysfunction, distrust uh, and resentment that we've seen spilling out into the streets through so much of 2020. It's very unfortunate. But we're, we're moving in the right direction. Uh, Tom, uh, I'm I'm jumping around here because I'm just constantly being reminded of other things that happened in uh, 2020 as this uh, the pandemic took hold. Speaking of reducing regulation and uh, authority of uh, state and federal officials, we saw a, a fairly uh, dramatic, if not altogether permanent, reduction in a lot of regulation uh, at the federal, state, and local level that was just making it easier for people to live their lives uh, amid a pandemic. Can you speak to that a little bit, Tom? I'm excited about it to the extent that I want to see how many of these stay in place afterwards. A lot of these uh, deregulations were done under a temporary pretext, you know, just because it's an emergency. Uh, we're going to reverse this once the emergency is over. But I think people are growing more and more accustomed to uh, the world without a lot of these uh, very uh, wasteful and inconvenient regulations that don't seem to, to serve any public purpose. So I'm very hopeful that we're going to uh, see a lot of these stay in, in place. I know on the federal level, legislation has been presented and I assume will be presented again in the new Congress uh, to have a some sort of a, a review commission uh, that uh, when these regulations come up or these, these temporary reprieves, so to, to speak, uh, come up uh, to uh, come up for expiration, that they be examined before uh, being allowed to expire. So let's hope uh, let's hope it ends up that Congress decides to say, well, let's just not do this anymore. Let's well, let's hope people at least tell their congressmen, let's not do this anymore. And the same goes at the state level, at the local level. You know, everything from getting uh, a, you know a cocktail, getting things in the mail that we regularly uh, weren't able to get through the mail. You know, all of these have made our lives so much more. Uh, you know so much more convenient, have lowered our costs and and people like it. So why not keep it that way? Yeah. And uh, in more directly related to the pandemic, many states suspended certificate of need laws. Uh, many states uh, moved ahead with uh, a, a 
a whole host of regulations over and above, you know, the convenience of getting alcohol uh, as a as a takeout matter. But uh, with respect to uh, how states responded, I just keep wanting to say that it just revealed that a whole lot of this was never really necessary. Well, we we you know, readers of regulation, readers of of libertarian uh, uh, works in general know that a lot of these regulations were put in place to protect the regulated and not the public, that uh, doctors in certain states, healthcare providers in certain states wanted to make sure they weren't competing with people across state lines, uh, that people couldn't come into a state uh, if, uh, you know, if there suddenly was demand uh, for a certain service. But suddenly now we have a lot of demand for certain services, you know, as, as this virus has bounced around from different geographic areas and now, you know, now generally is, is, is nationwide. And sure is nice to be able to have healthcare providers of, and, and other services uh, come in quickly or, or not even come in, do it electronically using the Internet uh, to help people out who are in need. How did the federal government respond? I, I thought in watching a couple of press conferences that the president uh, Trump conducted, uh, one in particular, he never looked more presidential than when he was standing back and allowing uh, leading members of the private sector explain what they were doing to uh, alleviate the costs, the significant costs of this pandemic. Leaders of of uh, chains of pharmacies uh, and other businesses, experts in logistics, explaining how how they were working to. Uh, make things a little better. That's going to be uh, a fascinating story to tell in the months uh, and years ahead is exactly how businesses responded to this emergency. Uh, my wife works for a, a prominent healthcare provider, uh, and I know they've had lots of meetings over the weekends, late early in the morning, late at night, trying to figure out how do you roll out COVID testing to new areas? How are they going to set up uh, uh, vaccine distribution first to emergency workers and then more broadly to the general public. You know, every other uh, major healthcare provider, I'm sure, having the exact same meetings. They have interacted with government officials mainly just to see what's going on in the, in the uh, FDA approval process. But, you know, the, they're doing a lot of this work and a lot of these logistics in house. And, and again, her her firm isn't the only firm doing this, but it goes so much broader than just healthcare providers, though they've been on the front lines. We've talked about on your podcast, you know, burrowing all the way down to places like, you know, fast food restaurants and how they've figured out how to serve customers in situations like this. You know, private delivery firms, FedEx, UPS, how they've served. You know, it, it's going to be a fascinating story to tell, but it shows the importance of of capitalism and and, and free markets to watch these firms with with uh, you know with tremendous investment with tremendous will uh, reconfigure themselves and get people what they want and need. What we know as the Moderna vaccine uh, that it, as of this recording is sitting with the FDA right now. It was recently revealed that vaccine was assembled, put together, if not perfected, in January. That's right. If you have a large public health community that is responsible for responding to the, these kinds of uh, problems quickly, nimbly, and uh, allowing for maximum flexibility in dealing with changing circumstances, it would seem at least problematic that something that was developed in January is, as of December, not quite yet rolled out for the public. And that's the story, I think, with both uh, messenger RNA 
vaccines that uh, Pfizer's uh, partner, BioNTech in Germany, they, uh, it's a, I believe it's a husband and wife team that had that firm uh, apparently wrote up uh, the, you know, the basics, you know, did the, the basic calculations for their vaccine in a week. Uh, Moderna, roughly the same sort of story they had. As soon as they knew the genome of the virus, they were able to figure out what they needed to do, uh, you know, wh- how they wanted to build their vaccines. And it will take, you know, it would have taken a lot of time even without government uh, in the way because, you know, they have to test these, you know, even if there's not the FDA established testing regimen, these firms would definitely want to test a vaccine that are that is going to be administered to literally million, you know, hundreds of millions, if not billions, worldwide. So it makes some sense that it's taken some time, but as you said, you know, eleven months seems a little bit excessive. Clark, relating to the the, the summer of protest, I guess that's the term I've settled on here. How did the candidates for president and uh, Senate and House and and local races? How did they treat it? And and were there any were there any real surprises? Well, I'm not sure that uh, criminal justice reform and and policing was really very much a part of this election cycle. If it was, I think mainly um, in the reaction against the so-called defund movement. There's this unfortunate slogan, you know, defund the police. Uh, I don't know anybody, and certainly no serious person I know. Uh, proposes completely eliminating the police. What the defund movement is really about, uh, at least the serious people who who are in that movement, is reallocating resources away from the police to uh, other social services that might be a more efficacious response to some of the things that we currently have police respond to. Um, There's been some talk about how many Democrats um, felt that this whole defund situation, which is the public has reacted strongly against, um, was kind of an anchor chain around their neck and made it difficult in some of their political races. So this is a fraught issue. And it's one that, uh, you know, while I think there is widespread and bipartisan support for criminal justice reform, uh, it was a sobering reminder that how you go about that matters tremendously. What your messaging is matters tremendously. And you can really put your foot in it if you're not uh, thoughtful and sensitive uh, about the way that you are uh, presenting uh, your both your analysis and your and your proposals. So I think there were certainly some Democrats who felt like they got stung by an aspect of criminal justice reform uh, that really, in my judgment anyway, was more a matter of form than substance. But it it still is is a potential setback, unfortunately. Uh, David, we're going to wrap up here soon. But as of this recording, Donald Trump has not admitted publicly that he lost the election. You know what? It's hard to lose an election. It, it's hard to be rejected when you're an author and a publisher rejects your book. Um, an election is so public. I understand it's hard to lose it. However, I think that what the president did was unpresidential and was dangerous in going forward with a large group of people now who have been told that there was some giant conspiracy uh, ranging from Hugo Chavez to Bill Gates to the Republican Secretary of State of Georgia um, that stole this election. And and I think that's deplorable to coin a word. Um, I hope we will get beyond that and Republicans and Democrats will cooperate in Congress just enough to do a few right things and not do too many wrong things. I always worry 
bipartisanship means I'll fund your boondoggle if you'll fund mine. So I don't want that. I want the two houses of Congress to look skeptically at each other's ideas and only pass the ones that are genuinely in the public interest, which is probably a lot of wishful thinking. Um, but I do believe that we will get past this. Polarization's a real problem. And we've always had Republicans and Democrats and liberals and conservatives. And for libertarians, it's always been frustrating because we don't completely agree with either side. But the sides have gotten so polarized and so just generally politicized. I mean, people are buying pillows and beans on the basis of whether the company is Republican or Democrat, pro-Trump or anti-Trump. Uh, I hope we can ease some of that and genuinely have a return to normalcy and then start talking about things like, is a $27 billion national debt too much? And what can we do about that? Billion or trillion? $27 trillion <laughs> national debt. A $27 billion national debt would be an occasion for champagne. Uh, Tom Fiery, speaking of hopes and perhaps some wishful thinking, uh, the Trump administration has not been all bad on the regulatory front. Uh, there have been some some rails put up that that uh, to hear uh, Will Yateman of the Cato Institute uh, in in various podcasts we've recorded seem fairly promising. What are your hopes for the state of regulation, both in in healthcare and elsewhere, in the new year? Well. Truth be told, Will and I have a very friendly and very collegial disagreement over the Trump administration's regulation. Will is much more optimistic. It's it's funny. I I, I listen to Will and I think about myself uh, when I walked into Cato's doors uh, 20 years ago in the first five or 10 years when these important regulatory reforms would would come along and I would go to to uh, Peter Van Dorn and say this is a this seems like a wonderful chance to fight this attack and Peter would give me a kind of sour look and say well we'll see and we would see that it didn't do nearly as much as we thought and and now as I listen to Will I I just think of Peter saying well we'll see um, in my opinion uh, the Trump deregulations have been an awful lot of hat with precious little cattle. Uh, there have been some changes. A lot of the changes have been by executive order and will last very, uh, very little past January 21st of uh, next year. Uh, some of the ones that have been uh, done properly that have been, you know, they have attempted to, to use the full regulatory process uh, will have a little bit longer life. But so many of those have been so poorly done that they will probably get knocked down in courts. And several of the ones that uh, are much ballyhooed by the Trump administration really ended up not being that important. And, you know, the first one that I think about in that regard is uh, the uh, supposed rolling back of the clean power plan. Well, uh, both the clean power plan itself and the rolling back of it haven't been that important because uh, the electricity producing industry has basically moved to using natural gas instead of coal. So uh, an attempt to uh, protect coal-fired plants or, or to get rid of coal-fired plants ends up not being all that important. But we'll see. It'll be interesting to see here in the last month, month and a half, what the Trump administration tries to push through in what's called the midnight period. This is when uh, an administration is leaving office and an administration of the other of the other party is coming in. So the outgoing administration is trying to get through uh, everything they possibly can until they they're shown the door. But my suspicion is that it will be done 
poorly, slapdash, and be rather quickly blown up by the courts because, let's face it, the Trump administration is very shoddy. It does not dot its I's. It does not cross its T's. And so much of what it does does not stand up to legal scrutiny. And as a libertarian, I may like some of the policies, uh, but the fact that there are so many of these hurdles in the way of both regulating and deregulating is a li- as a libertarian, I think is a very good thing. So I guess I, I have to you know swallow the medicine and see some of these get knocked down because it's good to have the process there to knock them down because it knocks down a lot of other bad things as well. So uh, if I understand you correctly, uh, whatever positive we could say about the regulatory record of Donald Trump, he's no Ted Kennedy and he's no Jimmy Carter. Isn't that ironic? (laughs) All right, Clark, uh, with respect to uh, any lasting effects of uh, the the outrage uh, of 2020 over uh, police killings of unarmed people, uh, particularly black Americans, Is there anything that we can say that uh, going into the next year that we should expect something positive to to come of that? Well, it's not clear. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, what happens uh, so often is that uh, people get all worked up about the latest incident. They demand change. Um, A significant number of of politicians express sympathy and commitment to to making that change, and then nothing happens, and, and, and they kind of get a free pass. I don't think that can go on indefinitely. I'm not sure what might, you know, sort of uh, uh, force uh, the government to to embrace the kinds of genuine and and substantial reforms that our system desperately needs. Um, but unfortunately, I think it will be uh, almost certainly another tragedy that we we can't foresee yet. Um, I would say this by way of of you know kind of wind up. Um, in some ways, maybe the question we should be asking now is why aren't things worse, not just with criminal justice reform, but generally the stock market is doing pretty well. Um, the contested election, um, some of us believe uh, the spuriously contested election is largely being worked out uh, through normal channels, including the courts. Um, we don't see a lot of fighting in the streets, etc. cetera. Um, the big question I have is whether uh, once we have a hopefully peaceful transition of power in January, uh, and the widespread dissemination of effective vaccines against COVID-19, is that when we can all breathe a big sigh of relief? Or is it possible that the chickens of 2020 will come home to roost at some point? What is the real state of our economy? What is the real state of our politics? David mentioned polarization. I agree. I've never seen the country more polarized. It is difficult for me to believe that um, come you know, let's say June, July, or August, when most of the people in this country who want them um, have been given vaccines, that we can necessarily breathe a sigh of relief at that point. I think there are some chickens from 2020 that will be out there, and I wouldn't be surprised if some of them come home to roost, and I think we ought to keep that in mind. Well, I'll try to keep the optimism in mind for uh, 2020, but thank you all uh, very much, and I apologize to our listeners. We barely scratched the surface of the things that happened in 2020. We just covered three three or four of the big ones. Uh, David Bose, Clark Neely, Thomas Fiery, thank you very much. Of course, you can follow all of our work on all of these issues on an ongoing basis at our website, cato.org.
trust in media is at near historic lows, and some people don't even trust traditional media outlets to get them a basically fair take on, well, anything. But perhaps that's not altogether new. In his new book, The Radio Right, How a Band of Broadcasters Took on the Federal Government and Built the Modern Conservative Movement, Paul Matsko details radio's former fairness doctrine and how fears of that doctrine, both real and imagined, helped give birth to a new conservative movement. There are members of the, notably of the U.S. Senate, who believe that social media companies pose a grave threat because they do not play fair. The argument goes that Facebook, Google, Amazon, Apple, other uh, Twitter, uh, other social media sites are overwhelmingly owned by leftists, people who consider themselves progressives. And by virtue of that fact, conservative speech is squelched. So people like Josh Hawley of Missouri, Tom Cotton, uh, and some other members of, of the U.S. Senate, Ted Cruz has been a supporter of this idea, want to regulate social media by giving the federal government essentially uh, veto power over their ability to operate their businesses in good standing with the federal government. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And in fact, some of the calls for um, government oversight of online content moderation um, very explicitly uh, appeal to this body of jurisprudence and administrative law around broadcasting. So that the the calls for a non-discrimination mandate for online social media platforms uh, is is really a is just an application of the kind of the fairness doctrine principle and related public interest law to a new medium uh, media form. Uh, it's a remarkably bad idea uh, for a variety of reasons. But let's I'll start by let's just stipulate. Let's say conservatives are correct that these social media platforms are on the margins discriminating against political speech. I don't think that's true. Uh, there's a great uh, paper written by uh, one of our colleagues, uh, Matthew Feeney, showing just how little evidence there is of algorithmic discrimination by the media platforms. But let's say it, it is true. Uh, before you swing an axe uh, at some of the key protections for the the shape of of the modern internet, like Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, before you swing that axe, consider that the head of that axe could fly off, hit you in the shin, and cause far worse damage than the thing you're trying to take down. Um, it's the shoe on the other foot test. And the reason why they should be aware of this is that we have seen in our in living memory uh, an attempt to ensure fairness in broadcasting went horribly awry. And the people who were the, the, the largest recipients of that oppression, of that censorship, were right-wing media broadcasters. And there is every reason to expect, if it is true that, uh, uh, say, the, I don't know, the left, progressives, liberals, I don't know, whatever uh, boogeyman you want to pick, control uh, major institutions in American society from government to media to education and so on. If you create a regulatory tool that can be so easily abused for partisan gain, who do you think is ultimately, even if you get to use it right now to protect your speech and to punish other kinds of speech, who do you think is going to be the ultimate target of that convenient regulatory tool that you created and just left lying around for the next unscrupulous administration to use? That's There's a cautionary tale there. 
Yeah, Barack Obama expressed concern that he was leaving a loaded gun in the White House uh, <laughs> shortly uh, after his election. But the um, yeah, the other the other thing that's notable uh, about about this is that you can understand the the paranoia, and just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. Um, and it seems odd that the response here is to create regulatory tools that would enable the feds to engage in exactly the kinds of uh, discrimination and create chilling effects for uh, all manner. And maybe maybe the, the right-wingers who are supporting this stuff are people who believe that there will never be a time when conservative speech is punished because uh, the, the the folks in Silicon Valley, the these tech giants are never going to be right-wingers like themselves. Yeah, I mean, imagine, let's put this in practical terms. Imagine a scenario in which we empower a government AG, uh, agency, and, and Josh Hawley selected the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, for his plan. Other people have selected different agents. Um, it was empowered to basically reward or punish uh, internet platforms, uh, content, internet content producers, depending on whether they were considered to have been discriminatory in what content they moderated. Well, first of all, that's all in the eye of the beholder. Like what counts as, as, as first of all, what counts as political content is in the eye of the beholder versus hate speech, right? Like, so the line between what's hate speech and what's acceptable speech, what's obscenity, what's not obscenity, all that is super fuzzy. And then when you empower a government agency to make those decisions, it, it brings it into the political process. So depending on what balance, I mean, imagine how currently decisions are made by partisan pan government panels. Uh, it's It all hinges on, well, what's the ratio of Democrats to Republicans? So you can imagine a situation in which, uh, you know, the decision about whether or not Facebook should moderate, should should remove more right-wing content or more left-wing content is just going to hinge on the party in power and the balance of power at that agency. And that's just a disastrous situation. I mean, uh, apply this in the, in, in the most extreme sense. Um, these days, internet content producers are not just social media companies. It includes every standard publication. I mean, National Review has, an, has a website. It is a content producer. So you can imagine it, someone coming along and saying, well, Look, you had pieces submitted to you by uh, by liberal authors that you turned down. All you're putting out is is I mean, you can see the ludicrousness of the idea of applying a fairness doctrine type system to the modern internet. It would just it would just break our the system. Facebook and Twitter can hire lawyers. Yeah, uh, they have lawyers in house who are keenly aware of uh, the potential for regulation to harm them. Then there's a, you know, the cost of regulatory compliance fall least heavily on incumbent companies. Uh, if you create a system of, of new regulations uh, that drive up those costs, you actually are creating a, uh, an anti-competitive moat uh, around the current incumbent organizations, making it harder for upstarts to enter in to compete uh, and making it harder for people who find the decisions of the incumbent players to be discriminatory makes it harder for them to find and create alternatives because, again, those costs fall most heavily 
on upstart our upstart companies. So it, the irony is that you end up producing the very thing that you're afraid of. You lock people in to these incumbent players that you're worried about. You don't actually free them from those incumbent players. And we can see this. I mean, this is a bit of an aside, but you can see this with what happened in the European Union with their GDPR, their uh, privacy regulation. The, the intended One of the intended purposes was to take down the influence, the relative influence of big American companies like Google which was dominating the uh, advertising online advertising market was to take them down a notch, encourage competition. But it's had exactly the opposite of the intended effect. It has actually locked in Google's dominance. Their their ad share has actually risen as a result of GDPR because of they're better able to you know to field those uh, costs of regulatory compliance. Paul Matsko is author of The Radio Right, How a Band of Broadcasters Took on the Federal Government and Built the Modern Conservative Movement. Cryptocurrencies can be used to defend civil liberties. So what does that look like? Jill Carlson is co-founder of the Open Money Initiative. At the Cato Institute's annual monetary conference in November, Carlson detailed the powerful relationship between cryptocurrencies and civil liberties. So first, you know, I'd like to just sort of propose and establish that there is, in fact, such a thing as fundamental uh, financial and economic human rights. And of course, we can find grounding for this notion in the work of John Locke in our own Declaration of Independence, uh, or even in the UN Declaration on Human Rights. These are all kind of references to property rights and possessions and even the pursuit of happiness. But what I'm talking about is something a little bit different, something that, you know, if you're here in attendance today, I'm, I'm guessing that you already agree with this, which is that there's this notion of the right to access a free, open, and functioning financial system as well. And yet all around the world, including here at home in the United States, we see governments and central banks violating this right. I'm talking about inflation, I'm talking about capital controls, confiscation, price controls, rationing, bank withdrawal limits, cash shortages, liquidity crises, all of these things infringe upon a person's ability to have a healthy functioning financial life. Now, perhaps nowhere in the world have all of these phenomena that I just listed manifested so clearly as they have over the last decade in Venezuela. Rampant government spending there due to the socialist policies that they have in place led to an economic dependency on oil. The oil price route of the last half decade combined with an election, rampant corruption, prolonged geopolitical tensions with otherwise would-be trading partners for them, this has all resulted in deep economic trauma and isolation for the country. The government's responses to these situations have led to, again, many of those phenomena that I just described as infringing upon their people's fundamental financial rights. It's led to hyperinflation, uh, over a million percent inflation, uh, annually in, in the country. Um, it's led to capital controls, confiscation of assets, price controls, again, rationing, debt default, just about every possible breach of economic and monetary freedom that could happen has occurred in the last decade in Venezuela. 
And yet, I would also argue that Venezuela is a great example of how people employ the creativity of the human mind and also employ technology to overcome all of these things. And to me, this is proof, actually, that there is indeed a necessity around having access to a free and open financial system to survive and thrive. And so today I want to talk a little bit more about the methods that people use to overcome this repression of their financial freedoms and the ways that those, those methods manifest. And I'm going to break it down into three categories, tunnels, bunkers, and exits. And so to, to tackle the first one here briefly, tunnels. If we think about financial systems in general in the world, we'll find that they're extremely siloed. You know, often we can think about the difficulties of transferring money from one country to another, even again, in a relatively free and open financial system, there are frictions in place there. Um, you know, generally these frictions are overcome by things like the correspondent banking systems, uh, by, you know, legal frameworks and compliance rules that can actually speak to and interact with one another. But sometimes we see these things break down. Um, and that happens in almost kind of a fractal way. It happens at the nation state level. It happens between institutions within a given country. And then of course it even happens amongst individuals. And so at the nation state level, we can think of silos existing when sanctions are put in place. Um, we can think of silos existing, uh, you know, when two countries refuse to trade with one another, you know, there's, there's all types of ways that, that things break down there. Um, between institutions, we can think about all of the frictions that might exist in a, a, a banking system that has experienced a liquidity shock or trauma or, or what have you, where the banks effectively shut or shut their doors, where there are cash withdrawal limits, um, or where banks, because of their need to meet their own liquidity demands, uh, are no longer transferring money in and out to each other. And then again, of course, we can think of the violation of the rights between individuals to even communicate, which is, of course, kind of the bedrock of being able to then transact. And again, Venezuela is a prime example of, of all three of these things. But again, in a place like that and places around the world experiencing this type of very extreme siloing of their financial system, we also see people tunneling into each other. And that's what I mean by tunnels. There are ways that people have come up with to be able to dig through from one silo to another. Now, historically, people have done this via things like offshore accounts um, and, and by using their sort of privilege of wealth and connections and so forth to, to be able to effectively execute on a regulatory arbitrage. Now, what I'd like to propose, and you'll see this as kind of a running theme across the other two methods that I'll mention as well, is that there are new ways now that have democratized access and ability to tunnel that have been enabled fundamentally by digital currency and by technology. And so, you know, we can look at a, a currency like Bitcoin um, and the technologies around it and see how it's enabled for the first time, you know, more of the average person to be able to build this type of tunnel into and out of a system in which they might be trapped. Um, and we see people doing this in Venezuela very specifically. 
uh, using a system called local bitcoins, and there are many other competitors and, and similar systems, uh, wherein people are building tunnels in and out of the country effectively, um, you know, in order to receive remittances from friends and family who have left, uh, in order to manage finances across border, all using, again, you know, specifically this uh, this system called local bitcoins, uh, and then also, of course, using the underlying currency of Bitcoin, which can transcend borders in a way that, of course, you know, money held in a bank account in Venezuela cannot. Um, and so that's the first way, right, that people are fighting for these economic and financial freedoms is by building tunnels. The second way that people are going about this battle is by building and finding bunkers. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. You know, in many of these situations, assets are insecure and they can be insecure in many ways. They can be insecure because of inflation, because there is erosion of value happening, uh, because there is volatility, debasement occurring, uh, but they can also be insecure because of issues of confiscation and expropriation. And so, you know, as with tunnels, when we look at and think about bunkers, i.e. sort of safe havens where people can go to and turn to in order to safeguard their wealth, there have long been ways available to the wealthy and the privileged and the elite and government officials. You know, Martin, I love that you touched upon that uh, aspect of it. The government is, of course, comprised of individuals, government officials to be able to find these bunkers, whether it's through investing in real estate, again, getting money offshore and into other currencies where the value is not eroding into commodities. Um, getting money offshore and into places where it's not going to be subject to confiscation as well. And so, you know, we see that that sort of the upper class of society has always been able to find a bunker for their assets in these situations to keep them secure. Now, again, Bitcoin and related technologies have actually democratized access to these bunkers in many ways, where suddenly all you need is a mobile phone and an internet connection. Um, and then, you know, to go on to a service like local bitcoins or another exchange or marketplace uh, in order to swap your money, swap your local currency into Bitcoin, therein protecting both the value of it from inflation as effectively an inflation hedge, one that comes at a much cheaper cost uh, than trying to, to get into real estate um, or, or similar, um, and one that's much more available. Uh, than, than uh, you know, even having to go out and buy, buy goods, which is something that historically those who haven't had access to the other methods that I mentioned have done. People would go out and buy eggs or sugar or flour, things that, that they think would keep and therefore keep the value of their, their net worth uh, as kind of a hedge to inflation. But all of that, of course, is subject to confiscation. It's, um, you know, in, in Venezuela specifically to speak there again, it's actually illegal to, to hoard these goods. And so Bitcoin, again, being a, a digital money uh, that one can store in the safety of a cell phone um, is, is really doing a lot to open the doors to, to more bunkers uh, for more of the population to be able to secure and safeguard their wealth. And the final thing that I'll touch on is, is the notion of exit. And so we have tunnels, you know, ways of people 
uh, being able to move their wealth around in an otherwise closed financial system. We have bunkers, ways of people being able to safeguard their wealth in an otherwise eroding financial system. And then finally, we have escape hatches. Um, and so, you know, it's it's important to recognize that there are situations in which the right to a free, open, functional financial system is so deeply and routinely violated by the government and by the central banks that there is no choice other than to emigrate. Um, you know, these are situations where tunnels and bunkers are just insufficient over the long term. And it's worth noting, one can't really live in a bunker. You know, you can't have all of your money in in Bitcoin all the time or in in physical goods all the time because you still have to interact with the crumbling society around you. And so it's no wonder then that, you know, if we return to our case study of Venezuela in the three years between 2016 and 2019, over 4.6 million people left Venezuela out of a population of 30 million. Um, but then the question arises of how do those people take their assets along? And again, until very recently, with the advent of Bitcoin digital currencies, it was very, very difficult and prohibitive and costly for people to be able to do so. And so I'll wrap up here um, and just say that, you know, I think that this framework of having tunnels, bunkers and escape hatches, I hope can be helpful as we think about uh, these fundamental financial rights. Um, and, you know, that I'm not talking about anything necessarily new here. It's not specific to economic and monetary policy. Uh, you know, we've been seeing people for millennia use these things to fight for their rights. I think that the difference here is, again, talking about financial freedoms and recognizing the ways in which technology and specifically digital currencies, cryptocurrencies are helping in waging that war. Jill Carlson is co-founder of the Open Money Initiative. Textiles are a pretty obvious necessity, but a good bit of the history of innovation and the world are told through their development. Virginia Postrel is author of The Fabric of Civilization, How Textiles Made the World. We spoke for the Cato Daily Podcast in December. Whenever you read uh, books about economic development, the first stage of economic development always implicates textiles. And I guess it's only in the last 300 years or so that we've had additional stages of economic development that have been allows countries to uh, exit that stage, that early stage that we, well, we think of now as an early stage, which is textiles. But uh, you tell a story here, and I've come to appreciate over the years that when uh, you write something, even if I think the, the premise is kind of weird, that I'm going to really enjoy it. And I really did enjoy reading much of this book. So historically speaking, why are textiles so important? Well, there are a couple of answers to that question. One is just textiles are everywhere. Uh, it's not just our clothes, which is the first thing we think of. It's blankets. It's bandages. It's tents and sails, which are more important historically than they are today, although tents certainly are, are still a, a major use. It's various kinds of sacks and bags and wrappings. Um, all They're just everywhere. Everything from seat belts to fire hoses, uh, 
<laughs> and so when you have something that's that ubiquitous, anything that increases its quality or lowers its cost or uh, changes the amount of labor that's needed to produce it has ripple effects throughout the economy it's, it, and throughout society and the way people live. So that's, uh, that's one answer. That's the more general answer. Uh, the more specific historical answer, which I go into in uh, more depth in the book, has to do with the Industrial Revolution and spinning. And one thing we don't appreciate, and I didn't appreciate until I was researching the fabric of civilization, is how much time spinning thread to weave or knit cloth consumed before the Industrial Revolution. And partly that's because we don't appreciate how much thread there is in like anything. Um, in the book, my touchstone example is a pair of jeans. So there's six miles of thread approximately in the denim in a pair of jeans. And the fastest way to spin that before the Industrial Revolution would have been an Indian charka, and it would have taken about 100 hours to spin that much thread. And that doesn't include ginning the cotton, cleaning the cotton. It doesn't include weaving or dyeing or any of that stuff. It's just the spinning. So you can see that while spinners were very poorly paid because they weren't very productive per hour, cloth was expensive, even at low wages. And so when you have spinning machines come in and suddenly significantly increase, even the early ones um, made a major jump in how long it took to spin thread, then you, spinning is no longer a bottleneck. Women are no longer spending all their time spinning. I mean, <laughs> it was a multitasking thing too. There's a picture of uh, in your book of a Chinese woman with some with some writing on it. And uh, the I guess the rough translation is that this is a woman wearing coarse hemp while she makes fine silk. Right. So she's making uh, she's making her taxes uh, in in China and many other places. Uh, one of the forms of taxation was in amount of textiles that you had to produce. Um, and in China, this was often silk. And the peasants who grew the silk, who raised the silkworms, who turned the silk cocoons into thread and then uh, wove that into cloth, they didn't themselves wear silk. They wore rough hemp, which contrary to uh, some hemp advocates today uh, was was later displaced by cotton because cotton was more comfortable. It had nothing to do with marijuana prohibition. Uh, but <laughs> anyway, hemp was a very rough cloth uh, that you made from from plant fibers, and that was the peasant what peasants wore in in China, and yet they had to produce silk to pay the government, which. Uh, then use that silk in different ways. It, in some cases, it paid its soldiers with bolts of silk, and silk was, in fact, in 
certain eras in China, a form of currency. There were standardized bolts uh, that were used in exchange, just like money. It wasn't barter. It was it was actually money. It also in, in this particular period, which is the Song Dynasty, where this picture is done, it also it was surrounded by hostile kingdoms. And so it would basically bribe those kingdoms not to invade uh, by giving their rulers Chinese silk. So this was a major aspect of life. Yeah. So you tell several stories and almost all of them are uh, innovation stories uh, about how uh, in in one example, uh, the productivity of silkworms uh, dramatically altered uh, the production of, of silk and all of the ripple effects there. The the uh, n- another innovation story is one that you just sort of alluded to, and that is the idea that uh, people who did spinning, low paid, but by virtue of creating the machinery to do that, freed up a you know hundreds of you know a, a full work week for a lot of people to be more productive. Right. And even the people who were very low paid in those early spinning mills, they're very low paid by our standards, uh, but they were higher paid than spinners in the previous eras, which was a lot of people uh, because they were so much more productive. Uh, And then during the once you got that spinning productivity up, weavers made more money and then power looms came along and weavers objected to losing their good salaries. And that's where we get the Luddites smashing uh, power looms. Uh, but power looms also had ripple effects. Like, for example, sales got much better because you could make them uh, more uniform and dense with power looms. And you have this big expansion of trade and and transportation, immigration. I mean, all these things trace back I mean, there are other things going on, but but trace back to improving sales, which traces back to improving thread and and cloth. Tell me about Joseph Marie Jacquard. Ah, yes, Jacquard. Well, this is the one thing that people know about technology and textiles, which is uh, Monsieur Jacquard invented. It's usually described as a loom. Technically, it's an attachment to a loom that could uh, select threads to make patterns uh, by advancing cards that had holes punched in them. And it's actually quite a complex machine. It's really hard to understand. Uh, It was very hard to make. It was at edge of the capability of uh, manufacturing in that era. Uh, But what this did was Its initial goal was to make very fancy silk uh, brocades, which were the most expensive kinds of fabrics, which were used in palaces. And I mean, they were not just used for clothes, but they were used for wallpapers and all kinds of things like this. And this would be, say, a, a strip of silk that would have in addition to the background silk, it would have, say, a scene of birds or something like that woven in, which it was very complicated because, first of all, you have to create the illusion of curves on what is a rectilinear shape. But the other thing is 
you have to select individual threads as opposed to a whole bunch of threads at a time and then you shoot across. And there were machines that were human controlled that could do this, but they were very, very tedious. And um, they were very slow. And once you use them, once you set them up, they were very limited in what they could do. And so what the Jacquard loom did was it allowed these very fancy patterns to be produced very rapidly, very easily and reproduced. Um, and that then expanded this kind of, uh, say, upholstery to, let's say, middle class people. It became a. And then the other thing it did was it just sped up production because you didn't have to use this to make super fancy uh material you could just use it to make ordinary material and it was much faster and so then it further expanded the ability to produce cloth uh, for a mass market this is a quote from your book here showcased at international expositions and adopted around the world jacquard's apparatus made weaving code tangible in a way that could inspire non-weavers shipbuilders designed similar systems to control the automatic riveting machines used to build the era's new ironclads. Most resonant in our digital age, the binary structure captured the imagination of Babbage and his successors. Quote, many of the subroutine methods and editing systems that are standard in modern computers were conceived in the 19th century to produce cards for textile patterns. That's bonkers. Yeah, and that's a quote from the 19th, the, the, the modern computing systems used in that quote is, are the ones from the 1970s, I believe. Uh, but yeah, so there is this, it was, weaving is the original binary system. It is, your rays are lower a thread, so it's one, zeros, on, off, up, down, that is completely embedded in weaving and weaving goes back thousands and thousands of years. So human beings have been thinking in this sort of on off way about patterning since before there was recorded history. Uh, so that it's, it's only in the last couple centuries that it got filtered out beyond weaving and, and people had this idea of using punch cards and using on off to control machinery and then later in, in computers. Uh, but it is part of our shared heritage everywhere in the globe. Virginia Postrel's latest book is The Fabric of Civilization, How Textiles Made the World. The sixth annual Human Freedom Index is the most comprehensive measure of freedom ever created for a large number of countries across the globe. Co-published with the Fraser Institute, the index presents the state of human freedom in the world based on 76 distinct indicators of personal, civil, and economic freedom. Find out how the U.S. ranks and learn more about the state of human freedom around the world at Cato.org. That will do it for this first edition of Cato Audio for 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.